We sang earlier a song that if you're kind of new to the faith, or maybe you've been in the faith a while, and it just seems so strange. Uh, that the last song we sang, it said, um, uh, and now I'm, I'm, going, I'm going blank on the exact wording, but your blood washes away our sins. Isn't that kind of weird we sing about that? Like, your blood washes away our sins. It seems kind of strange, maybe if you're not churched or if you don't understand the Bible um, very well and then you read like you hear songs like that, your blood washes away my sin. What in the world is that about? Well, this morning, as we continue in our Life of Moses series, uh, you, you're going to see where this whole blood begins, uh, this whole idea of blood washing away, blood starting a covenant. And so this morning, we're going to we're going to take a big jump. We're going through Exodus 20 through 24, five chapters, uh, looking at the, the, the law of God and the life in Christ. The law of God and the life of Christ. I wish I could read through all of this, but I can't. But I encourage you to do that today or this week. Spend time reading. Um, you know where we're heading each week, so go ahead and read ahead. Uh, and so... Last week, we saw Moses went up on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, and God said, I want to make you guys, you guys being Israel, the Jews, I want to make you a kingdom of priests, one type of person. And it wasn't about uh, um, anything that they had done, but God had chosen them to be a treasured possession. Uh, and, and so he... he he made it contingent upon, you know, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant. Well, you're going to see this morning this covenant that they receive. Um, they receive this covenant and how it's sealed. And so you're going to see a pattern. And this is a pattern all throughout Scripture. Uh, in the garden, God gave them one command. They broke that command and what came after it? Law. Here, God gave them, hey, obey my voice, keep my covenant. They disobeyed. Remember, they were afraid they wouldn't come up the mountain. They disobeyed. And what comes next? Law. Parents, you guys understand this, right? When you have a baby, there's no rules. There's no curfew for a newborn. You just, part of it is you're just trying to survive, right, Dave? You just say, man, you're here. You look like you're awake. And so, uh, you, but do you have any rules right now for, for Leo? Leo has no rules, right? Does he have any rules? Zero rules, but they're coming. Rules are coming because little Leo is going to be disobedient. I'm just going to let you know that, Dave. Leo is going to be disobedient. Parents, amen? Amen. I see some nods. Yes. And so when disobedience comes, law comes. And, uh, and, and so you, you see this pattern here. And so you see here, uh, law is coming in chapter 20. And the first part of chapter 20, most, if not all of you, are so familiar with. Uh, but I, I want to set it up this morning for us to really think about how confusing, like, you know, this whole Ten Commandments, should they still be in our schools today? Do, should, do, do they need to be, like... How do, we, how do we live out those? How do we live out other laws of the Old Testament? This is such an important section for us to really grasp. And so 
let's kind of walk through this. I'm going to pray as we begin to walk through the Ten Commandments here this morning. Uh, Father, you are so good. You are faithful, and you are seeking after your people. And Lord, I pray this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict the hearts of those that have never repented of their sin and trusted in you for salvation. I pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage those that need to be encouraged. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear you this morning. That we would understand the beauty of all the Bible. That we would be less confused and intimidated by it. I pray that we would be able to give an account of the hope that's in us to those that ask us questions about the different laws in the Bible and why we believe what we believe. May we not be ignorant. So Lord, give us wisdom to understand this morning. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. So this is when God gives the Ten Commandments the first time. He gives them another time. There's a little accident that happens a little later. And so this is the first time Moses gets them. Chapter 20, verse 1. Let's look at this together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. Uh, and Moses brought them out. Uh, Olivia and I, we had an opportunity this week to go on a date. It was awesome. Uh, and uh, we went and saw the movie Harriet. Have you heard of Harriet? It's nobody, nobody's heard of this movie. It's only me and Olivia, okay. Uh, it's about Harriet Tubman and how she was this conductor of the Underground Railroad of, of, of moving these slaves uh, it was an incredible movie. Uh, language, obviously, so um, uh, you need to think through if you should go see it or children should see it, but to think through what she has done. She, and I didn't know this about Harriet Tubman, but she was actually called Moses because how she, just like Moses, um, was leading slaves out of slavery. Um, so you see God's reminding them what he's done for them. And then he goes into um, these commands, what we call the Ten Commandments. Uh, in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, and you're going to see the first four are all about vertical. It's all about your relationship with God. The last six are all about your relationship with others. And so... The first one, no other God before me. Uh, and, and, and so, this is one that, man, we're, we are all guilty of. And maybe you're thinking, I've, I've been a Christian my whole life. We all have, and if you notice, it's a lowercase g, God. We have gods before us all the time. A God is anything that we put before the God, the one true God. These are what we would call idols of the heart. Things that where you've elevated maybe a relationship or um, it, it could be money, 
could be a, a, a job or possessions. We've all put other gods before the one true living God in some way. For some of you, it's your children. You make little gods of your children. That you elevate them. Uh, and so we, we can all fall to this one. Uh, the second commandment, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here's this command of don't make any image after me. And here's the reason why. The moment you do that, and we're going to see that in a moment they make this golden calf. And, and, and sometimes we think about the golden calf and we think, how in the world could they do that? Uh, they were honoring the Lord. Uh, a calf was a symbol of provision. Uh, and so in some way they were saying, like, Lord, you're, you are a provider. But when you make an image, you limit God. You limit him to just being a provider. And he's so much more than just provider God. And so whatever image you make is going to limit him. Uh, and so that's why we should not have any carved image or any likeness of anything because he's so much bigger than any one image. You can't capture all of who God is in just one image. So we're not to make any. The third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so here's this idea of, of like, you are, you are, you cannot um, speak of the Lord in such a way that's, 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 that's um, going to bring shame to him. And, you know, in our culture, it's one of the things that we often say right now is, oh my God. We say that OMG all the time. Oh, my God. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, the Lord's name is holy. It's sacred. We just can't use it in any way that we want. It's guarded. The Jews looked at it being so holy, they wouldn't even say the name of God. Even when they would write it, they would use the first letter and the last letter and then just some dashes. Because they just thought, we, we can't even speak it. It's so holy. And yet we just, we take Jesus' name and we just throw it out all the time. In our culture, and the Lord says, don't take my name in vain. The fourth command, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, 
The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So he's reminding us that you need to rest. You work six days, seventh day you rest. And when we don't rest, what we're saying is like, we don't need you, Lord. We're going to do it all on our own. We're in control. We don't need the rest. And we need to just stop. And there's things that might not get done. And what you're going to see is that life is still going to be okay. This is going to stress some of you out. It does me. But I need to remember just to rest, to, day, to take a day and just to rest. Commandment number five, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. So there's a shift here. The first four were your relationship with God. Now the next are all about your relationship with others. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. This tenth commandment is incredible. Because it's showing us the heart of God. That he's showing us. He's preparing them. You've got to think they've been enslaved for 400 years. They were slaves. God's bringing them out of slavery. He's establishing a new nation. Giving them land, as we'll see in a little bit. And these are going to be rules to kind of govern. But all these, like these rules with each other, they're all objective. You notice that? They're all objective. I can clearly tell if you murder someone. It's objective, right? There's someone dead right there. How did the dead person get there? You murdered them. You commit adultery. That's objective. The facts show us you've committed adultery. Do not steal. Well, you, you've taken that. It doesn't belong to you. Stealing or um, bearing a false witness. You, you, you said that. I heard it. We all heard it. You, you lied. Covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife. See how it's, it's different? It's subjective. And it's preparing. See, here the law is going to be written on tablets of stone. God's going to give those to Moses. And they're going to be given to the people. But as we, you're going to see this is beautiful. God's going to show us how the law now is not written on stone. But the law is written in our hearts. And you see here that this one, it's subjective. It's something inside. Coveting is something that you think about. But you're not satisfied with what God's given you, and so you're desiring someone else's wife. You're desiring their possessions, their materials. So here are the Ten Commandments. And, and so those are, man, you guys have probably heard that, and some of you may have those in your house even. Um, Maybe you haven't memorized. But here, it, it, it's my role as your pastor, as an elder, as a teacher, to, to help you understand how Scripture works. 
And one of the most dangerous things that you can do is isolate a passage. You take a passage and you just rip it out of its context and you cling to it. And it's my job to help you this morning to have a better framework that that you keep Scripture in context and see how it all works together. Because I think we can be guilty of this. And so what do we do with this? So if you just have a Bible, why don't you just kind of look with me as we just, we're going to jump through. We're going to just kind of skim through. Um, And so here's the Ten Commandments, but notice it doesn't stop right there. It's not like, okay, go do these Ten Commandments, put these in your schools, say the Pledge of Allegiance, and you're going to become a great nation. Notice there's so much more happening here. Here are these Ten Commandments, but it's not, there's so much more than just Ten Commandments. If you just flip with me, Chapter 21. So this covenant still hasn't been sealed yet. So he's giving them all of the things that they're supposed to obey. And in chapter 21, in verse 1 and 2, look at this. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. Okay? So what do we do with that? That's the very next chapter. Are we still supposed to have slaves today? What's going on? Jump down chapter 21. Look at verse 15. Whoever strikes, Xavier, pay attention. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. What do you do with that? That's, that's right after the Ten Commandments, is it not? I mean, it's all the same context. Nothing's happened. Keep on going. Verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Now, I know many of you have had this happen to you and your families and you've been wondering, what do I do? Here you go. Look in chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner. What's a sojourner? It's kind of a strange word for us. Uh, A a traveler, a visitor, someone not from here, a foreigner. Um, Think about this in our context of, of of our country, what we're going through right now. You shall not wrong a foreigner, a sojourner, or oppress him. For you were a sojourner in the land of Egypt. You should not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. So here's this, like, okay. So that sounds good. So that might be one we'd cling to today, right? But do we still strike down a child who hits his parents? So how do we pick and choose? Is this timely for us today? You ever wonder, like, why certain rules we... From the Old Testament we keep and certain rules we don't. Why the law? Why not? Chapter 23, we're all still the same. It's just God just giving him commands. You can see it. I'm, I'm just picking certain ones. There's a lot of other ones I could pick this morning. Um, 23, 10, 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its, in, in its yield, but the seventh year you shall not 
or you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave uh, the, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. What if you don't want to keep a field? What if you would rather have a, you know, what if you'd rather be in business and you don't want to be a farmer? Are you now disobeying God? What, what do we do with this? Keep going, verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Okay, there's, if you look in 23, 14, well, just following that, you're going to see these three feasts. There's the feast of the unleavened bread, the feast of the harvest, the feast of the ingathering. How many of you have gone to a church where you've had these three feasts all in one year? Heathens. Shame on you. Why don't we keep these? Why don't we do the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? Why aren't we doing the Feast of the Harvest, the Feast of Ingathering? But, but yet, we will still talk about the Ten Commandments, right? So how do we do all this? Here's another one. Verse 19. Uh, the best of your first fruit of, of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So it means you give your first fruits to God. There's another verse in here that says your first child you even give to the Lord. Like, you, like you're dedicating that first child to the Lord. Uh, and then it says you shall not boil a young goat and some other's milk. I mean, what in the world does that have to do with us today? I mean, I know some of you lose sleep at night because you just don't know what to do with the young goat. And you thought, man, I, don't, I just don't know what to do. So what do we do with all of this? So from chapter 20 to really the end of 23 and 24, you see all these commands, this law. I could flip over a little later in their history to Leviticus. And there's a lot more laws about what foods they eat, what you know, foods that are unclean, um, different kind of clothing to wear. So how do we reconcile this? Um, you know, in our culture today, there's, there's definitely this push that, that, that you Christians that say homosexuality is a sin, that, 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 but then, then you turn around and say that now you can eat, you know, uh, seafood or eat, pig, like, why do you just pick and choose which verses? You see how this is a timely message for us today? And I think far too often Christians don't know how to answer those comments. Why do you pick certain laws from the Old Testament and not others? Well, I've posted for you on our Facebook page um, an article from a guy named Tim Keller. The article is on the Gospel Coalition website. And it is so well done. I, I, I could have put this in my own words, but I'm just going to read it because it's, it's probably the best succinct um, understanding of this. And, uh, and then we're going to look at, man, just how the Lord has just, he's done so much for us. Um, so let me just, let me start. So listen along with me. This is Tim Keller writing, and he says, I find it frustrating when I read or hear people 
dismiss Christians as inconsistent because they pick and choose which of the rules in the Bible to obey. Most often I hear Christians ignore lots of Old Testament texts about not eating raw meat or pork or shellfish, not executing people for breaking the Sabbath, not wearing garments woven with two kinds of material, and so on. Then they condemn homosexuality. Aren't you just picking and choosing uh, what you want to believe from the Bible? It's a really good question. And maybe you've been challenged by that before. He goes on to say, I don't expect everyone to understand that the whole Bible is about Jesus and God's plan to redeem his people. But I vainly hope that one day someone will access their common sense before leveling the charge of inconsistency. First, it's not only the Old Testament that has uh, prescriptions about homosexuality. The New Testament has plenty to say about it as well. Even Jesus, in his discussion about divorce in Matthew 19, 3 through 12, that the original design of God was for one man and for one woman to be united as one flesh, and failing that, persons should abstain from marriage and sex. However, let's get back to the considering the larger issue of inconsistency regarding things mentioned in the Old Testament no longer practiced by the New Testament people of God. Most Christians don't know what to say when confronted about this issue. Here's a short course on the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And this is so worth our time this morning. The Old Testament devotes a good amount of space describing the various sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and later the temple to atone for sin so that worshipers could approach a holy God. There was also a complex set of rules for ceremonial purity and cleanliness. You could only approach God in worship if you ate certain foods and not others, wore certain forms of dress, refrained from touching a variety of objects, and so on. This vividly conveyed over and over that human beings are spiritually unclean and can't go into the presence of without purification. So that's what the tabernacle was a reminder, that you had that veil that reminded you that you were unclean. You can't come back here. God's too holy. And there's all these sacrifices and blood that was shed so that your sin could be atoned for, forgiven, reconciled. He goes on the right. He says, but even in the Old Testament, many writers hinted that the sacrifices and the temple worship Regulations pointed forward to something beyond them. When Christ appeared, he declared all foods clean. Mark 7, 19. He says that it's not what you put in that makes you unclean. It's your heart. He says your heart is it's what's coming out of you is unclean. But it's not because what you put in. Jesus is saying like, he's kind of... Uh, there's some irony there. He's saying, like, that's just going into your stomach, and you're going to pass it. That's not going to make you unclean. Your heart is the problem. He says, the reason is clear. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn, 
showing that he had done he had done away with the need for the entire sacrificial system and with all of its cleanliness laws. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin, and now Jesus makes us clean. The entire book of Hebrews explains that the Old Testament ceremonial laws were not so much abolished as fulfilled by Christ. Whenever we pray in Jesus' name, we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. It would therefore be deeply inconsistent with the teaching of the Bible as a whole if we continued to follow the ceremonial laws. The New Testament gives us further guidance about how to read the Old Testament. Paul makes it clear in places like Romans 13 verse 8 and following that the apostles understood the Old Testament moral law to still be binding on us. In short, the coming of Christ changed how we worship but not how we live. The moral law outlines God's own character, his integrity, his love, his faithfulness. And so everything the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, and commitment to our family is still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid killing or committing adultery, and all the sex ethic of the Old Testament is restated throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, then it is still in force for us today. The New Testament explains another change between the Testaments. Let me just go ahead and clarify this too. The word testament means covenant. So really we have, what you have in your hand is two covenants. You have Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New, New Testament. So the New Testament explains another change between the Testaments. Sin continue, sins continue to be sins, but the penalty change. In the Old Testament, sins like adultery or incest were punishable with civil sanctions like execution. This is because at that time, God's people constituted a nation state. And so all sins had civil penalties. And you're going to see that when we jump back into Exodus. That God was creating a nation. Uh, that that, that this, there'd be a nation with boundaries and borders. There'd be a government. But yet they were also a religion. And so when you say you're Jewish, it meant more than just a religion, a faith. It meant maybe where, a nationality, where you were from. So there's a lot wrapped up into it. It's not like the church, as we will see. But in the New Testament, the people of God are an assembly of churches all over the world, living under many different governments. The church is not a civil government. And so sins are dealt with by exhortation and at worst, exclusion from membership. So, you know, if you were to commit adultery, we're not going to execute you. We're not going to stone you to death. But if you don't confess your sin and repent of that sin, you would be excommunicated from this church. You couldn't continue to be a member of this church. We'd ask you to, to repent or we would treat you as a lost person. 
So we are not a civil government. And this is how Paul deals with cases of incest in the Corinthian church. Why this change? Under Christ, the gospel is not confined to a single nation. You have to understand that. Old Testament was how God was working through his people, the Jews. They were a nation. The church is not a single nation. Um, The gospel is not confined to a single nation. It has been released to go into all cultures and peoples. Once you grant the main premise of the Bible about the surpassing significance of Christ and his salvation, then all the various parts of the Bible begin to make sense. Because of Christ, the ceremonial law is repealed. Because of Christ, the church is no longer a nation state imposing civil penalties. It all falls into place. However, if you reject the idea of Christ as Son of God and Savior, then, of course, the Bible is, a, is at best a mishmash containing some, interpreta- or some inspiration and wisdom, but most of it would have to be rejected as foolish or erroneous. So this is this idea of, like, how, while we take some and not the others, the, the command there about how to treat a foreigner... That, that's, a, that's, that's, that's not a ceremony. That's not how to make you clean ceremonially. That's about how you should just relate to other people. That we're all created in the image of God, and every person has value and worth. Every skin color, every, every uh, culture has value. That every person's created in the image of God. And so it, it, it goes back to Genesis 1. It's, just, it's rooted in creation. That's while we treat people with kindness and with value. Not because uh, of some command for the Jews. Um, and so thinking through the Ten Commandments, it's, it's the same way. Like, do we have to obey those as like the Jews did? No. But do we need to obey those because those are how, those gives us, shows us the heart of God? Absolutely. So are we binding to the Ten Commandments as the Jews were in the Old Testament? No. But are they beautiful reminders and truths that we need to keep in front of us? Absolutely. In fact, you remember Jesus, you may remember Jesus um, said this in Matthew 22. This is not on the screen. In Matthew 22, there's a... Um, actually, if you'll just go ahead and jump down that. It's at the very end, Johnny. Um, in Matthew 22, um, you'll see that it says this, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So here Jesus is saying, like, of all the commandments, here's, here's the first. And then he says, This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the promise. So he's basically saying, you take all those hundreds of laws from the Old Testament, and you kind of diagram them back, you're going to get two. Make much of God, love Him with everything that's in you. So you think of those first, those first four of the Ten Commandments, right here. Don't put any other gods before him. Don't take his name in vain. 
Don't have any carved images. Honor the Sabbath. All that's wrapped up in love your God more than anything else. Your whole being to love God. And once you love God, love others. All those other laws, they're all about how to relate to others. Think about it. They were, they were getting ready to spend 40 years in the wilderness. There's no running water in the wilderness. There's no refrigeration. Think about certain foods. And if you didn't have refrigeration, it would bring harm. It would be dangerous for the people. They would die if they would eat it. So God gave them all those commands to help them live a life honoring to him, pleasing to each other, how to relate. Remember, there's over a million Jews coming out of, out of Egypt. You remember a few weeks ago, we, we looked where Moses was spending his whole day dealing with, with legal ramifications. People were coming to him with, this person did this, that person did that. You know, it could have been, hey, my neighbor's ox gored um, my wife. How do we deal with this? So these things were happening, and they're going to be living 40 years in the wilderness. How are they going to live with each other without killing each other? This was the way. And so when we jump back, so in Exodus, God was creating a nation, a nation with borders. So let's look back, Exodus 23, verse 31. So he says, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. See, the church, we don't have this command. Uh, we don't have this command to, I mean, if, if we want to be obedient, we need to go to Israel and live, right? And that's what that would mean, right? That Israel belongs to us, that we should go and, and dwell in Israel. But, but God's saying, I want you to spread all across the world. This was for his people at that time. And then he seals it all. And this, this is where we started this morning with this whole idea of blood. Like this, it just seems kind of strange. In Exodus 24, God seals this covenant. So he told him on the mountain, hey, I'm going to make this covenant, you need to obey it. And Moses came and told the people, and they all said, hey, we're going to do everything. And so here's this covenant that they're agreeing to, and look how it's initiated. And Moses took the blood, so this blood came from bulls, he took the blood of bulls, and he threw it on the people. Think about it. That's how you sealed a covenant. That you would take the blood and you would throw it on the people. Does that seem weird? But that way you would know, like, okay, this is sealing the covenant. The blood was shed. And then it, it says, the, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with with all these words. So this is sealing this covenant that God would be the one true God. He'd be faithful. These would be his people. And they'd have this relationship. And you see, this is, maybe you're already jumping ahead. You, you can kind of see where this is pointing us to. This was the beginning of the old covenant. Or what we would call the old covenant. If you meet a Jew, don't call it the old covenant. They get really offended. Um, 
it might ruin your chance to witness to them. Uh, but this is when it all started, right here. This is the covenant. And so this blood sealed this covenant. So the bull's blood was shed so that there could be this relationship between God and his people. You with me? See where this is pointing us? Luke 22. Luke 22, Jesus getting ready to die. And right before he dies, he's celebrating the Lord's Passover with his disciples. And look at this language. You guys know this. And he took bread. And, and I just what's the Passover reminder of? It's when they were slaves in Egypt, right? And so you see this parallel. This is absolutely beautiful. So timely that Jesus... This is why, like, when people say the Bible is written by man, I'm like, there's no way a man could write this and keep it all so unified. This is beautiful. So he took bread for the Passover meal, which celebrated the coming out of Egypt. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying... This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And uh, likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this is Jesus basically just taking his blood and sprinkling it on the people. Just as Moses was this mediator between God and people, Beginning this covenant, saying, my God wants to be with you in relation with you. Now, Jesus is doing the same thing with his blood. That's why we sing about the blood of Christ, that he's sprinkling it on us. Hebrews does a great job showing us this, Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as the high priest, okay, so this takes us back to Old Testament. He says, high priest of the good things that have come then. Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, uh, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of, blood, uh, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify and pure, and, and sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So this is talking about the high priests who were themselves, they were defiled. They weren't perfect. And they were making purifications for people. So this is kind of the, the, the argument. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit... Um, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works uh, <coughs> to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under that first covenant. And so, this is how all this works, is that we are no longer under that law. We don't go to Mount Sinai. As we saw last week, we come to Mount Zion, to Christ, who has a better word, 
his covenant is better. It's perfect. And so his blood, we don't have to keep coming back. The Jews, every time they sin, would have to come back and make another sacrifice to cover their sin. Jesus is perfect. Look at me. Jesus is perfect. He's better than anything that you'll ever chase after. There's nothing that will ever satisfy your heart like Jesus can satisfy you. He's the only thing that can wipe away all the sin you've ever done. It's not your good works. It's not all the deeds you've done or how much you've given away. It's only by the blood of Christ that you come into this new covenant. That when you surrender your life to him, when you say, Jesus, I, I've tried to do it on my own. I've tried to live it out. I've tried to go up the mountain on my own. But I just know I can't, and I'm just, I just surrender. I'm a sinner. I need your help. And I know that you've died in my place. It should have been me who died, but it's you. You've taken on my sin. You know, that's, that's what the gospel's about. That's what the New Testament's about. And so this morning, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I, I pray as we sing these songs that you will sing with excitement about the blood of Christ, that you'll sing with excitement about what God has done, that he took your place, that he made a new covenant, because none of us could perfectly live out the old covenant. We would be exhausted, and it would be a bloody mess. But Jesus' blood was sufficient to cover your past, present, and even your future sins. He doesn't have to keep going back to the cross because you mess up this week. He is sufficient. Would you embrace that truth this morning? Would you celebrate that he has freed you from that law? Would you stand and sing this morning?